I still remember my first missions class at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, Krista and I had been traveling around on syllabus day at our beginning of the semester, getting all of our assignments and to-do lists, and we were feeling very stressed. We'd been through a lot of different classes. The same thing, roll call, assignments, here's your due dates, and basically shuffle out the door, right? And then we came to uh, our missions class, and it was totally different. Um, Pastor, or Pastor, or Dr. Mark Young was our professor at the time, and he launched from the get-go into one of the most glorious um, sermons, really, on the glory of God to the ends of the earth as the people of God join the mission of God for the glory of His name. And it was inspiring and shocking and just upended our lives. It was beautiful. And God used that course to shape our lives in powerful ways. And so it's a great joy to share with you this morning my professor, who's now the, the president of Denver Seminary um, and has written a bunch of books. He's well-credentialed, all of those things. You can see it in the bulletin. Uh, but one of the things that matters to our story here at the Moody Church is he was the one who initially gave my name to the search group five years ago or whatever when this whole thing started. So you can blame him for everything that's happened since. So anyway, <laughs> so I've, we're going to invite Dr. Mark Young. He's married to his wife, Priscilla. They have, for over 40 years, they have three children, seven grandchildren. They've got one on the way this fall. And would you give a big Moody Church welcome to my friend, Dr. Mark Young. Thank you, By the way, the one on the way is a grandchild. Just, <laughs> just make sure we're all on the same page. The author of Third John reflected this. He said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I would say to you that as an educator, that is absolutely the greatest joy that we have. And so it is a tremendous joy for me to be here in this church where God's led Philip and Krista to enjoy the fruit of their ministry in your lives as I hear you praising the Lord and as I see you eager to learn from God's Word. So let's begin by asking ourselves a question. And that question is, what question most frequently comes to our minds on a daily basis? What is it that we wonder about more often than anything else? It seems to me that if we're honest and are able to step back from our lives, the question that most frequently comes to our minds is, what time is it? True? How many times a day do you look at your watch or do you just wonder out loud or to your, in your own mind, what time is it? And the truth of the matter is, we ask ourselves that question because we use time to coordinate our behaviors and our routines with that of other people so that we can create some measure of an ordered life in society. So the fundamental premise is this. If we know what time it is, we know what we're supposed to do, right? 
we know what time it is, we're supposed to meet with person X, we're supposed to eat, we're supposed to catch that flight. And so if we know what time it is in the course of a day, we know what we're supposed to do. Now, what if we stepped back from our daily lives and asked ourselves this question, what time is it in the eternal plan of God? Because see, the Bible narrates to us not just some tips for happier living and not just some ideas that are intriguing to the mind. The Bible narrates to us the entire history of humanity from creation to our destiny, from the beginning to the end. And we find ourselves in that history. Our faith is an historical faith. God's work in the world is an historical work. And so if we step back from our daily lives, asking what time is it, like should I eat now? But asking ourselves, what time is it in the great span of God's redemptive history, in the span of God's clock in, with humanity, what time is it? That's the question that we want to ask today. And that's the same question that we see the disciples of Jesus asking as well. So if you would, open your New Testaments or find yourself with the end of your finger to Acts chapter 1, and we'll take some time to look at that event, that period of days when the disciples were asking this same question. And if you are an astute Bible reader, you will know that Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, in many regards, is an expanded version of what the chronicler Luke gave us in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. So later on today, you can compare those two passages together. Luke writes it this way, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So let's step back from those words for a moment and perhaps try to enter into the experience of Jesus' disciples. They had begun just about 47 or 50 days before that, a period of time in which their emotions had reached heights and fallen to depths and was now kind of headed back up this way. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've resolved to never again subject myself to a roller coaster. You know what it's like. You get in one of those little wooden cars, and someone who doesn't yet have their driver's license slams a bar down on your knees, and you're supposed to feel safe. And then you start a little bit of a down ramp, and then you get to that first big heel, hill on the roller coaster, and you go up, 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 and I guarantee you, if someone had monitors on me, my pupils are dilated, my breathing is shallow, my pulse is up, you're up to the top of the hill, and then you plunge into darkness and despair. <laughs> that was exactly the experience of the disciples. 
They had come into Jerusalem with Jesus. There was an announcement that, yes, Hosanna, the Lord had come. There was this time together, and then he was dead. And a tomb, a stone, hid him from them. I don't think we can ever fully appreciate the depths of despair that the disciples found themselves in after he was dead. And then some women who were the bravest, the ones who were willing to go to the tomb that Sunday morning, came back and told the disciples that he was alive. Of course, they had to find out for themselves. And John tells us that John and Peter ran to the tomb. And John, in passing, tells us that he got there first. And they find out that, yes, he's risen from the dead. He's not there. And then they have this period of time when they're together with him. And Luke tells us that during that time, he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that, he, that they thought Jesus was a, was a ghost, the resurrected Jesus. So he gives them many convincing proofs. The language there from the legal system is evidence that cannot be denied. It wasn't like they were sitting in the room and one of the disciples says, oh, 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 over there in that smoke, I think I see Jesus. Or, in that mold pattern on the wall. I think I see Jesus. No, he was with them. He invited them to touch him. One of the most intimate moments in all of Scripture. He ate with them. And he spoke with them for a period of 40 days. And what did they talk about? Well, clearly this wasn't a group of people over 60 because they didn't talk about their pains and their medication. <laughs> they didn't even talk about the bears. They, they talk about, he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Oh, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 24, we read that during this period of time, Jesus opened the scriptures and explained to them how he was the fulfillment of the plan of God. And all of that fulfillment is wrapped up in this phrase, the kingdom of God. This was a phrase that those who had grown up as Jewish people, they recognized immediately. This was what God had promised, the kingdom of God. It's unfortunate that in the church we've spent too many days and too many words arguing about the nature of this kingdom and when it's going to happen and how many days or years it's going to be. All of that, by the way, is a distraction. The fundamental issue in the kingdom of God is this. When the kingdom of God is fully realized, everything that's wrong in the world will be made right. And everything that's broken in the world will be made whole. And everything that's ugly in the world will be made beautiful when God reigns in all of His glory. All the wrong stuff in the world, all the injustice in the world will be made right 
and all the brokenness in the world that we experience on a daily basis and we see in the lives of others, all that brokenness will be made whole. And all the ugliness in, world, in the world will be turned into this beautiful experience of the presence of God. Read about it in Revelation chapter 21. That's what the kingdom of God was about. Jesus spoke with them about how things were going to be right and things were going to be whole and things were going to be beautiful. And oh, did they long for that day. Did they long for that kingdom? They wanted it just like you and I want it. Is there anyone here who doesn't want everything in the world to be made right and everything that's broken to be made whole and everything that's ugly to be made beautiful? Is there anybody here who doesn't want that? We yearn for that. We wait for that. We ache for that. And so did the disciples. He spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Luke tells us in verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Clearly, those who had studied the Old Testament scriptures knew that the coming of Messiah, the establishment of the kingdom, was bracketed and framed by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2 is probably the most powerful and clear prophecy related to the coming of the Spirit at the establishment of the kingdom. Then in verse 6, they gathered around him, the disciples gathered around him, and they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? My wife and I lived in Poland during the communist era, during the end, toward the end of it. And during that time, we didn't have phone communication. We had a phone. It worked a little bit, and folks listened to us when we talked on the phone. One of my friends got to know the person who was assigned to listen to their phone, so they just talked to them <laughs> whenever they'd make a call. Uh, but we also didn't have regular contact with our parents uh, back in the States. So occasionally my mother would send a, a, a box to our family, and it would come through. Usually it had been opened, but it would come through. And in that box were these marvelous gifts, Honey Nut Cheerios. Snickers bars, toys for our kids, our three kids. And from time to time, Grandma would read a book to the kids and put it on, and this is an archaeological artifact for some of you, but a cassette, like a cassette tape. And we'd hear Grandma's voice. And do you know what? In that box, she never put broccoli. And in that box, and from her voice, the kids never heard no, or pick up your clothes, or go clean up the backyard, because we had a dog. They never heard her say that. So for them, Grandma was the giver of all good things. When the box came from Grandma, everything that was wrong in the world was made right. 
and everything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So we said to our kids one day, kids, we're going to grandma's house tomorrow. <gasps> grandma's house tomorrow? Where only honey nuts and snicker bars appear on our plates. Where there are new toys every day. Where no one says no to us. That's grandma's house. We're going to grandma's house. Now, we didn't tell our kids this. To get to grandma's house, we had to get up in the middle of the night and take a taxi to the local train station, ride that train for five hours to the airport in Warsaw, wait three hours, get on a flight, fly seven hours to New York City, wait four more hours to take a flight to Charleston, West Virginia, and then grandma would pick us up. We didn't tell them that. <laughs> so the next morning we got up, we got everybody moving in the same direction. All of you parents know just how hard that can be with three children, a dog and a cat. Hope, thankfully, the dog and the cat were left behind. We got the three children, all the bags. We got on the train. The train pulled out from the station. Priscilla and I are just kind of going, ah. It hadn't been 10 minutes until the oldest asked the question. <laughs> Do you know what that question was? And it was? Your kids are just like mine, right? Are we there yet? Are we at Grandma's house where everything we ever dreamed of is going to come true? Are we there yet, Dad? That's what the disciples are asking Jesus. Jesus, are we there yet? Is everything in the world about to be made right and whole and beautiful? Are we there yet? And Jesus' answer to the disciples, I'm afraid, was perhaps as unsatisfying as my answer to our kids. He says to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. He's already told them, them this. They've asked Him about when He will come again, and He's already said, only the Father knows when all of this will occur. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. By the way, it's because of this verse that I've made a vow. I'm never, ever going to buy another prophecy book. It's not for us to know the times and dates. And anybody who tells you they do know, all they want is your money. It's not for us to know. It's for the Father to know. But, he says to them, I have something better for you than knowing the times and the dates. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. While you wait to get to Grandma's house, while you wait to see when everything that's wrong is made right, and broken is made whole, and ugly has been beautiful, while you wait for that, while you yearn for that, while you ache for that, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. 
One of the ways I like to summarize this verse is simply with this little saying. What time is it, Jesus? It's time for the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to testify to the Son of God and fulfill the mission of God throughout all the earth. That's what time it is. Yes, that's what time it is. So we know in learning theory, right, if the more of yourself you engage in learning something, the more you remember it. So now you're going to get to do it with me. It's time for, take your hands, set them free. It's time for the people of God. Now, some of you are not doing it. I'm not sure what's going on here. Get through all your self-consciousness. It's time for the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to testify to the Son of God and fulfill the mission of God throughout all the earth. That's what time it is. And remember what we said, if we know what time it is, we know what we are supposed to what? That's what time it is in the plan of God. That's what time it is as we wait. We are empowered by the Spirit of God to testify to the Son throughout all the earth. And it's not just what we do, it's who we are. My dear brothers and sisters, this is a complicated world that we live in. The problems are complex. The issues are far-reaching. The pain and the suffering and the deprivation exceeds that which many of us have ever seen. And if we're not careful, we're overwhelmed by all of that. And we don't know who we are and what we're supposed to do. This is who we are and this is who, what we're supposed to do. Sometimes I think we get all wrapped around the, the axle. We have too narrow a definition of this word, you shall be my witnesses. When I came to faith through a parachurch group, witnessing meant going through a little booklet to help somebody come to know Christ. And yes, we need to do those kinds of things. And yes, everyone needs to know that our primary identity is as the people of God and the followers of Jesus. And as we live out that faith, in whatever we do, as the people of God, we are witnessing to the, to the Son of God, the risen Son of God. A friend of mine asked this question, are you living a questionable life? Wait a minute, what does that mean? Like, does that mean, are you living a life with no integrity? No, the question means this. Are you living the kind of life that people ask you why you live the way you do? So that you can say, because of my faith in Christ? Witness means simply to make Jesus known. And yes, it's witnessing when we step into the lives of those who are in need. And yes, it's witnessing as followers of Jesus when we serve those who are grieving. And yes, it's witnessing as followers of Jesus when we're honest about those who have been sexually abused and we step into their lives in a proactive way. And yes, it's witnessing about Jesus when we as followers of Jesus come to reckon with our history as a nation and are willing to say there's been an equity and inequality, and, and we need to do something about that. Yes. 
Because whatever you say about Jesus, if you're not doing all that, those other things, it simply won't matter to those you talk to. Unless our lives are, but, are buttressing that which we say about the Son of God, our testimony is empty. That's what time it is, church. It's time for us to be honest. It's time for us to be bold. It's time for us to recognize that the fundamental movement of God is toward those who need Him the most. That's who we are, and that's what we're supposed to do. You know, the next verse here, just one that catches me off guard, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Does that strike you as odd? I mean, imagine the, you have a commander with, his tro with troops, and the commander says to the troops, you see that hill over there? Our objective is to take that hill. We have the firepower to take that hill. We have the strategy to take that hill. We're going to take that hill. Let's take that hill. And then he walks the other way, and he's gone. Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses, and poof, he's gone. Just as before, a stone had hidden him from their sight, so now a cloud hides him from their sight. And so it's no wonder in verse 9, verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky, up into the sky as he was going. Well, yeah. Now what? And two men dressed in white stood beside them. Two men, because it's on the testimony of two people that a testimony is deemed true, dressed in white to indicate they've come from heaven itself. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Far too often we neglect this powerful image of Jesus ascending into heaven where we know He's seated in the very throne room of God. This ascension, this great moment when He disappears from them establishes the certainty that the mission they are to carry out will be accomplished. That this great plan of God to make everything right and whole and beautiful will be done. We are just as certain as, of that as we are that Jesus walked the face of the earth and was resurrected. So, dear church, what time is it in the plan of God? It's the time between when Jesus has come to establish redemption, been raised to the dead, ascended into heaven, and will return to make redemption whole. And in that period of time, what are we supposed to do? We, the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, are to testify to the Son of God and fulfill the mission of God throughout all the earth. That's what time it is, and that's what we're supposed to do. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you 
for the privilege of living at this time. Thank you for the privilege of experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can testify to your Son. In every dimension of our lives, we pray that through your Spirit, we would make your Son known. And we pray and long for making things right and whole and beautiful, just in small measure, until that day when you make it all right and whole and beautiful. Encourage us in this great mission that you have entrusted to us. We pray it in the name of the one whose death secured victory over sin and death and evil and whose resurrected life secured the certainty of what he had done and whose ascension gives us hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.